Uh, turn your Bibles to Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this, your word. And God, we ask for your help to not just hear it with our ears, but to hear it with our heart. And Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would transform us. We pray that this word would shape us and shake us, that we might more faithfully follow you for all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I... Um, we're, we're in this series on Acts, and we're mostly just running straight through the thing, but we're nearing a point in the calendar uh, and in the book where we're going to start jumping um, because Advent is coming. Um, I, I know it doesn't feel like it, but it is, and um, we're going to be looking at selections of, of Pauline sermons uh, because that's a lot of what the second half of the book of Acts is. Um, and so, honestly, I wanted to just start that this week. I did not want to preach this passage because it's small and um, it's, it's just not fun. Um, I'm not super excited about it when I, when I look at it, but uh, I felt like I could not move past this little story of this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so I wrestled with this text this week to try to have it ring out of me what ought to be wrought. I am, I am a, a bad friend. I'm not good at being a friend. Um, and uh, it's, it's not like I like serially betray people or things like that. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm much better at listening to other people than volunteering what's going on with me. And I would, in all honesty, much prefer bearing your burdens than having you bear mine. Um, and so that makes me a mediocre at best kind of friend. Um, my, my track record in friendship is, is exactly that. There's not a lot of people who really, really know me because um, I'm just not very good at it. And this morning, what I want to talk about is friendship, um, which is partially why I struggled with it because I, I just said, what am I supposed to tell these people? <laughs> um, 
But the, the text is here for a reason. And, the, and this is why we, as much as possible, preach all the way through books is because you, you end up running into these texts that you'd rather just sort of step around. And instead, we need to look straight into them. This story is, is strange and mysterious because Luke doesn't provide a whole lot of extrapolation about what is going on here. He kind of just presents it like a historian. He just says, this is what happened. Uh, there's people involved here that you may have kind of lost track of. Barnabas is up to this point Paul, one of Paul's most significant partners in his missionary journey. He is the first one who accepts him into the company of the apostles and sort of serves as a, a bridge for Saul, who will become Paul, into this larger church com community. He is this son of encouragement or mercy. And there is a third figure, this guy, John Mark. And John Mark, for a time, traveled with Paul and Barnabas. And at some point, earlier in the book of Acts, he wanted to go home. He deserted them, is the word. It's quite serious language. And he leaves them. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are agreed about what should happen at that point. They put them in their dust. What you find out later, if you read the book of Colossians, is John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. And so Barnabas felt strongly enough about what happened, what John Mark did earlier in, this, in their lives together, that he didn't have any problems putting John Mark in the rearview mirror. This is some years later. And now Paul wants to move forward and to go on. And Barnabas wants to bring his cousin along. And there is... In the words of the text, a sharp disagreement. And what happens is they end up splitting. They end up parting ways permanently. They no longer are, are traveling partners, missionary partners anymore. And Luke does not come into this story and really enter into the task of like arbitration. And saying, here's who's right and here's who's wrong. Maybe it's a little bit shaded in Paul's favor because of the way that he talks about how the church blessed them. Maybe. But he doesn't come out and say, Barnabas was a fool and Paul was right or anything like that. He just says there's a disagreement and there's a split and they go their own separate ways. And uh, I was reading... Calvin's commentary on this passage this morning. I was reading tons of commentaries because I just couldn't quite get a handle on how are we supposed to think and to feel about this thing. And the first thing that, that John Calvin says about this is this passage is a warning to anyone who would, who would read it, especially members of the church who are on mission together because he said it's so easy for things both big and small to find what he calls chinks in the armor and to split people who otherwise ought to be together. And so we can't come into this text and just say like, okay, usually what ends up happening is we're team Paul here because uh, he wrote so much of the New Testament. We just kind of assume Paul is always right. That is 
not our conviction that Paul is always right. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture, not the infallibility of Paul. It's entirely possible that Paul is being harsh with a young guy who has made a mistake and must feel terrible about it and wants to undo it. And we also don't believe in the infallibility of Barnabas. It's entirely possible that Barnabas is unable to see that this guy is unsuited for any kind of ministry. And so it would be clearer and cleaner for us if Luke would have weighed in and the scriptures would speak and we would be able to say, like, clearly Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong or vice versa. And we're not left with that. We're left with the story of what happened and a warning. And I think that we are in a place in time and culture that needs this warning. We live in a place in a time where we are constantly discipled into believing that the people with whom we disagree are the people we must push away from because they are so wicked that their wickedness might corrupt us. And many of us, we fall prey to both the instincts of our nature and the algorithm of programmers. And we constantly digest, far more than we digest the scriptures, this narrative that the world is at war and my team is on the right side and any allegiance with the other side is to invite in the destruction of the universe. Now, it sounds funny when I say it that way, but it is precisely the kind of emotion and rhetoric that our world lives in. And when you constantly are being discipled by this stream of thinking, that time works on you. So that ultimately you end up coming to believe just that. There is no way that I could be friends with a Democrat or a Republican. There is absolutely no way that I could be friends with an anti-vaxxer or a vaxxer. Because you are constantly being inculcated with this stream of rage and fear. And you can say, my, my commitments, my beliefs on these things are produced by my pure rationality. I am making these decisions because they are the right thing to do. Completely pretending like you are not immersed in an aquarium where the waters around you are pushing you in this direction. And that kind of world has not found um, the church to be an unwelcoming place. For the past year and a half, two years, maybe longer, churches have become some of the most fertile breeding grounds for this way of thinking. Some of the most vocal, vociferous, even violent proponents of this way of thinking stand at pulpits, come to church every Sunday. And on the same sort of 
social media profiles where they revile and ridicule the other, it says, whatever, lover of Jesus. And we've somehow found ourselves in a circumstance where the church has adopted a mode of friendship that looks exactly like the world's. And that kind of atmosphere is poisonous and corrosive and destructive. And yet it is justified and propped up by theological terminology and worship services. What I want you to see in Acts 15 here in this little end piece is that we are not living in the first era of church disagreement. That in fact, from the very beginning, church people have been knit together in church relationship and disagreed about serious things, important things. Don't hear me say that the question of whether John Mark should be ministering alongside Paul is, is not trivial. It's important. And this is not the first time our day in which church people have been in common fellowship together and wrestling over difficult and important things that produce these what Luke called sharp disagreements. It is tempting today to look and say, if we could just go back to Bible times, then everything would be hunky-dory. It would be rosy and beautiful, like a glorified Jesus hippie commune, where it's just love and peace all the time. The problem with that view is the New Testament, because the New Testament is very honest and saying that the church has always had problems with deep disagreement over very important things. I dare you to read the beginning of Galatians and wonder if perhaps this legacy of very sharp speech is not old. Because Paul will call the Galatian Christians idiots. Your English might not say it that way, but that's what he's saying. He says, you idiots, what are you thinking? If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, those people are in a mess about everything. The words of the Bible themselves attest to us that in the church will be struggle, will be difficulty. Part of the reason why we find ourselves in the position we are culturally and in the church at large, is because we feel like we live in an entirely unique age. Everything hangs on our decisions, our friendships, and our disfriendships. And that's a lie. Always have the weightiest matters of the world found a point of conflict within the church. Because the church is made up of people. There is sin, there's holiness. There's friendship and there's fracture. The first thing after that is that you ought to ask yourself the question, as do I, do I find myself to be in friendships with which I can even have deep disagreement? 
What I mean by that is, is not just, do my friends and I talk about serious things? But do I find myself in friendships with people who actually disagree with me? Or do all of my friends look exactly like me, think exactly like me, feel exactly like me? So that we only echo one another, a kind of perpetual hallelujah chorus for one another. Or do we enter into the kind of friendships that unveil and provoke deep disagreement? Because those are the kinds of friendships that churches ought to find in their walls. The church ought to be a place that truly reflects God's wide-sweeping grasp through the world. That of course we have people of all different political convictions. Of course we have people who think differently about the most important and substantive things of, the, of life. One, we are all at various stages in our growth with Jesus. We should be unsurprised when we find ourselves at odds on deep and important things. And I won't even force you to say, maybe I'm wrong about me. I'll, I'll let you hold to that just by acknowledging, maybe I'm more mature than the person behind me. Now, that's not a very mature way of thinking, but if that will at least allow you in your mind the possibility that there could be people in the church who think very differently about important things, then by all means, just continue to believe perhaps you're more mature than everybody. But at least let them in the room. At least make space for them at your table or next to you in the sanctuary. Is there space in your life for a kind of friendship that will produce deep disagreement. Certainly, the biblical ideal is unity. We ought not to lose sight of the fact that Paul himself will repeatedly command the churches to live in unity. And Luke doesn't get into commentary, but I think it's, it's worth listening to the rest of the New Testament to assume that it seems like it would be better if Paul and Barnabas had not split. Because it always seems to be such that we would be better if we were together. Now, sometimes separation and fracture seems unavoidable. Sometimes it feels like separation you can't step around it. But it's important to look at the kind and the reason of division between Barnabas and Paul. Their, their division, their conflict, is over the mission of Jesus. And what I'd ask you to reflect upon is, if you are sort of this morning feeling and counting the friendships that you've lost, and given away. How many of them truly were over the mission of Jesus? How many truly, because you disagreed about the most important things? And how many are really, because your feelings were hurt and you could not forgive? 
and they cannot forgive you. If you continue to read on and look for these names, they come back up. And Paul will speak of Barnabas later in 1 Corinthians. And he speaks of him as a fellow worker. Somebody who's on the same page with him. He'll speak of John Mark several times and actually ask for him to be brought to him because he's a useful fellow worker in Jesus. And we don't know what happens in their intervening time. We don't have their sort of reunion and reconciliation plan laid out for us, which would be quite helpful. All we have is evidence that they have reconciled with one another and have found in each other a kind of friendship and brotherhood once more. Now, I'd ask you to pick that up and compare that to the friendships that you've watched be ripped apart, the friendships perhaps you've lost, perhaps the friendships that you yourself have destroyed. How do those two circumstances compare? There is a reason that Jesus teaches us to pray so frequently. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. It's because forgiveness is hard. It's really hard. We certainly do not feel like it all the time. And anybody who is being forgiven does not deserve it. That is intrinsic to the word forgiveness. And so we feel like we are owed our grudge and our bitterness. And what Jesus will say is, you are not. And so we are constantly a people who are taught to pray, help me to forgive as I've been forgiven do the friendships that we make in this church and in our life reflect this kind of cohesiveness that defies this ideological separation? Calvin, at the end of talking about this passage, he'll say, who knows who's in the wrong here? Perhaps it's Paul for being overly strict. And perhaps it's Barnabas for being overly lenient. But this did not have to happen, is what he says. Paul could have yielded. What he says is, Paul could have accepted the loss. He could have voiced his opinion on a matter of deep importance and then conceded to his friend. What he says, Calvin goes on to say is, do not let overzealousness destroy the good work of the unity wrought by the Holy Spirit, but instead be willing to forfeit. He says, non-essential matters can so easily destroy what God has put together. And what we have to confess is we live in an age with fragile friendships. 
We are constantly told everything is essential, everything is vital, everything is at the center, everything could destroy everything. And yet here in this place is meant to be a kind of love and affection for one another that will tolerate our sins, our immaturities, our disagreements, so that we might be knit together in the bond of love and fellowship. Do we, as a church, offer that kind of friendship to one another? Do we look for the person who's isolated in the room? Do we look for the person who we know has done wrong? Find them on the edge of the room and bring them in closer? Or do do we do exactly what the world has taught us to do? And find those who sound just like us. The reason why the Christian view of friendship ought to be so thick as to withstand what fragile friendships cannot withstand is because underlying our conviction and love for one another is an understanding and a reception that God has made us his friends. In John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you these things I command you so that you will love one another no longer do I call you servants I call you friends Because I've disclosed all that the Father's given to me, I've given to you. Notice the kind of friendship that Jesus extends to these people who shortly will betray him. This is John 15. It's near the end of the gospel. Chapters away are many of them fleeing from him in his moment of deepest need. And what he extends to them is the hand of friendship. And he says, when you do what I command you, you enter into this similar kind of friendship. Our hope is not, as Valley Hope, to be more virtuous people and try to just make everybody feel buddy-buddy with everyone. That is, it's a wonderful thing for people to feel loved and accepted and welcomed. It's, it's crucial. It is vital. But the Christian vision for friendship is even deeper than that. But you are being extended not just my hand in friendship, but you are being extended the divine hand in friendship with him, the most unexpected gift that any of us have imagined. Now, Paul and Barnum is split, and they both go on to live a life of mission. 
that this terrible thing that has happened, God takes and he multiplies mission through it. Because the plan of God cannot be frustrated by our own fickleness and failure. But he can take even our sin and grow something out of it. I'm telling you that today because if you are today feeling the wounds of friends lost, friendships given away, or burned down to the ground, what I'm telling you is God will be a better friend to you than you have ever been to anyone. Your friendships and mine fail, ultimately, because of sin. Sometimes it is my own choices against them. Sometimes it's just the world is broken and things happen and friendships fail. But what I'm telling you is that Jesus says something about friendship with him is inconquerable. And so our hope for our community life together is not in our own virtue, but in the virtue of Jesus' friendship with his people. And if today you are realizing that you are, are unreconciled to lots of people in this room and out, and if you are realizing that you have taken up all kinds of ideologies and, and, and causes that tr- have stepped over the cause of Jesus, and you are realizing that in your case, you know whatever the, the circumstances of the other person, I am the bad friend. I am the one who has failed. Jesus does not approach you with shame and condemnation, but with conviction so that you might recognize your own isolation and disaster and might receive his own friendship. That you too, even on the brink of your own betrayal, can hear the Son of God say to you, I no longer call you servant, but friend. And if you are reconciling with that today and you are grieved by what you have done or failed to do, come hear Jesus and take what he gives to you as your friend. And if you are here today and what you are feeling is the weight of the grief of losing what you once had, maybe against your own will and your best efforts, Your friend has not failed you, nor has he left you, nor will he ever. He knows the grief of a friendship betrayed and would still say to you, I'll never leave you, never. And so what you must do this morning is turn to Jesus. And take what his hand extends to you and find your own life in the friendship with God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the scriptures tell us you are not just our friend, but our brother that we can be united to you and found in you. We bring to you 
all of the, the scars, the bruises, the wounds of human friendship, all the ways that we have failed, all the ways that we have been failed. Father, we confess to you that we are sorry that we have adopted so much of the wor- what, what the world has taught us about friendship, that we have chosen of way, a way of being a friend that is so much worse, so much cheaper, so much less faithful than what we find in you and you alone. We have made terrible, terrible decisions. And yet, you still call us your friends. So, Father, I pray for all of those who are here today who are lonely, who struggle to have anyone who would unite with them in friendship. I pray for those who are in here who are mourning what they've lost by sin and by circumstance. Father, I pray for those who are so overwhelmed by their own flaws, their failures, their sin. God, I pray that all of us might be drawn into you, that we might be consoled, comforted, and healed by friendship with God. Father, we ask that you'd help us to be a people together who are, who are bound up to bear each other's wounds, each other's burdens. And that this would be a place where we don't live in perpetual echo chambers, but that, that we experience the love of God, which is so rich and deep and profound. The people from every kind of diverse background will find a place at our table because we know that ultimately they have a place at yours. We love you, Jesus. We love you far too little. But we thank you that you loved us first and best and that you'll be faithful to the end. It is our great hope. Amen.